Hi, everybody. I've got a really lovely guest this week. I'm so happy she's agreed to come and talk to me. I've known her for many, many years. She's a beautiful lady and she's just written the most amazing poetry book called Came the Lightning, 20 Poems for George. And that is George Harrison. And it is the beautiful, lovely Olivia Harrison. Olivia, hello. How are you? Hello. I'm very well. This is very nice. <laughs> Thank you. I love seeing you and, and talking to you this oh. very warm afternoon. Yeah, it's very warm, isn't it? My goodness. It's going to get warmer, so get ready. <laughs> but you've got caves there, haven't you? You can go in, into your... Yeah, they're they're nice and cool. Are they, are they cool? Are they, are they natural caves? No, they're Victorian folly. Oh, that's right. I remember so, you and George very, telling me about that years ago. Very eccentric Victorian uh, gentleman was fascinated with the blue grottos of Capri. So um, he, <laughs> he built his own. That is, I mean, like you do, right? <laughs> you do. They did. Victorians did what they wanted. I know. What was his name? He had an amazing name, didn't he? It was, it was Sir Frank Crisp. That's right. I remember um, you telling me the story years ago, but I never got to see the caves. Really? Well, get out here. Oh, well, we will. Time. Okay. <laughs> I'd love to see them. I, there's a picture of them in the book, isn't there? There Your is. Beautiful, beautiful. I have to say this book, which we will talk about in depth. Olivia's written this amazing, amazing book of poems for George that is so, I mean, amazing and there's pictures of the cave in that but we'll get back to the book in a minute <laughs> and it was lovely to see you at the launch last week thank you thank you for coming it was, it was thank really you for having us great support um, but i i wanted to um i love to find out about people i mean i know obviously quite a lot about you because we've known me known each other for a few years haven't we i was trying to think the first can you remember the first time we actually met my memory so it must it must have been in the late seventies, early eighties. I'm thinking because Danny was born. Your son oh, Danny, that's right? That's Danny right. was born um, in 1978 in August, right? right. And my daughter well, Carly was born in 1978 in December, right? So right. I must have. We must have met. They were small. They were yeah. That's right. We had some something to do with childhood kids. Yeah, kids and, and then we didn't young. see each other for many years for many reasons of living in different places. And yeah, but we do go back quite a while. It's amazing. I know. And then we had lots of nice times when, uh, when George was here, and that's we had right. That's Christmas right. and birthdays and things. Together. Yeah, we had some lovely. And then then when. Um, Carly and I were out in California. We came out to That's right. your lovely house there. That was so, you know, like a lot of people in our world, in our business, you, you kind of meet people, make friends, and then often you don't see each other for many moons, and then it all comes back together. And it's nice, so I like it. It's a very nice tribe of people. It is. It really <laughs> mostly. Is. Yeah, mostly. <laughs> <laughs> So you were you were born and raised in California, right? I was born in Los Angeles, born oh, and raised. Oh, you're there. in LA. Do you know I've I met? Know. I've only met about 
it, people who live in LA, I think I've only met about three who were actually born and raised in LA. Dustin Hoffman is one. Do you know Dustin? I know Dustin and Lisa a little bit, Lisa yeah. Moore. Well, he was born and raised in LA because I always thought he was a New Yorker because he's so yeah. kind of New York. But, that was um, because of Midnight Cowboy. Yeah, And we all right. thought he was a New Yorker. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I know. You know, I have some LA friends. Uh, Rita Wilson was born in Los Angeles. Oh, that's right. Yeah, she, I, I, she came on my podcast. She's lovely. I know, isn't she? And she's a rich, I mean, some of her her records are fabulous. I love she's, her. She has an album of duets coming out that is Oh, with, with Josh um, Grogan. Josh Grogan's one of them, but um, I shouldn't give it away. But she, oh, okay. she's done, she she really has done, uh, the most amazing uh, duets. I I mean, she's a friend of mine, but I'm really. Um, oh, well, I do, can't do wait pass on my love. Me. She was so lovely. I, I mean, I didn't know her when she came on. I think we kind of met, but we mm-hmm. didn't know each other. But she was so lovely, and um, and I love her music because that's all very up my alley or or that. But um, so she, yes, yeah, she, you're right. She was born and raised in LA. But you're taking you right back. Your grandparents came from. I don't think I can pronounce in Guanajuato. My well, grandparents why. came from Guanajuato. Guanajuato. Where's that? Guanajuato, Mexico. Mexico, sort of in the north of Mexico City, and uh-huh. uh, quite a bit. Um, I think my grandfather came over in like 1910, maybe. Uh, both my granddads and and met my grandmothers there, and so it was a very had lots of aunts and uncles, and we lived in. Uh, I wrote a poem actually called She. I wrote one called He and one <laughs> called She, trying to show how different and yet similar George's and my backgrounds were. You know, um, it's funny. I, I have a, I have a, you know, a fondness for latitudes. And so I always think, you know, George was here at 53 North and I was sort of 24 North. And there was, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of big difference there in, in, in your the latitudes of where you're born. And yet, you know, both our mothers were named Louise. Were they? They both, wow. both happened to love the same song. And, uh, and we, we had similar households. You know, we used to stay with his dad in Liverpool. And then we'd come and stay at my mom's house. And it was, you know, I used to think, now it's just a little house. Don't, you know, it's nothing special. Imagine taking, you know, you're taking your your partner, your new boyfriend to yeah. your mom's house. It's like, it's just a little house. And he just happens to be George Harrison, you know. And he's like, oh, you you must be kidding. This is like a mansion compared to where I live. Oh, no. And it was so sweet. And uh so he got along really well with my mom and dad, and and oh. uh, we used to stay there in the little bedroom, and then we'd go up to Liverpool and stay with his dad, and get up and make us cups of tea and fried eggs, and it was lovely. Just normality, really, isn't it? Yeah. So, what did your grandfather come up to LA because he wanted a new life, or was it hard? Was it hard where they were living? I mean, I don't really know what was. LA must have been quite countryfied in 1910. Yeah, it wasn't. It was. Very much. I mean, um, I I can't. I don't really know why. I said to my mother before she died, she was one hundred and one. She died in twenty twenty. Oh 2020. my goodness, bless her heart. I said, well, how did how did Grandpa get to L.A.? She said, yeah. hmm, 
I don't know. <laughs> and I said, because I know people walked. I was just saying, you know, do you think he immigrants walked? walked? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I thought there must have been. I was looking up Santa Fe, the trains. Were there trains? Did someone who had a car? And uh, so yeah. I, I, I can't say I knew, but I think probably for work, you yeah. know, to, to get a job. Yeah. And of course, then it wasn't such a border. I always say, you know, the Mexicans didn't cross the border, the border crossed them. Because, <laughs> uh, because really, California, it was, there was no Mexico in California, you know, it became, it was, um, it was kind well, there's still Baja, California, which isn't that still Baja. That's, that's, that's a sort of peninsula. It was part of Mexico. I mean, so was California. You know, yeah. there was no Mexico until the Spaniards came. It was indigenous people there right. who are my ancestors, the indigenous. And then, um, you know, there was really no borders. So they, they came up to California and, uh, you know, Los Angeles was, I don't know if you've been ever been downtown LA to Alvera Street, which yeah, is the oldest. It's And, and, and the, the church there. Mm-hmm. Um, and Our Lady of Guadalupe, the church there. That was the sort of first streets in Los Angeles that were settled. Wow. And this is pre, pre kind of the film world moving to LA, oh, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is, is way, 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 you know, when the Spanish came. But it's funny you saying, I wonder if he walked, because Lee, my husband, who you know, his dad, uh, this would have been in the probably the late 20s, Mid late twenties, early thirties. He was a song and dance man. He, he was a double act. They used to do uh, tap dancing and sand dancing. <laughs> and he was born and raised in Glasgow. And he wanted to get to London. And him and his partner walked. I mean, they stopped along the wow. road, the way to what, sleep yeah. and take odd jobs. But that's. I mean, it's not as far as as Mexico to LA, but. It's quite a walk. Well, it is kind of. It is, you know, it depends on where. Yeah, it's it. You know, it's probably about the same. Yeah, I would but, imagine. But you know, people. I think but, people, when needs must, as they say, people did that. Isn't that incredible? I mean, I think I'm amazing if I kind of walk two miles to the shops. <laughs> yeah, we have no idea about those long walks. Uh, you know, that was a real. A uh, dangerous, treacherous journey. It yeah. still is uh, yeah. for immigrants and Mexicans trying to come to the United States. Has, has that got any better or not? No, I don't believe it has. Yeah. And you know, I in the in the poem I write about. You know, we lived in uh, South Los Angeles, and you know, it was all Hispanics, Mexicans, and uh, you know, my my granddad had roses. We didn't have a lawn. You know, we had lemon trees, avocado trees, and roses, and uh, he grew everything. Yeah. This was, you know, a little Mexico. And then in, in my poem, it says, one day we packed up the Chevy, moved west to a town where all the girls' names had exotic new sounds. Sandy, Becky, Jerry, Harriet, and Chris, mucho gusto, Olivia, Trinidad, Arias. So that was me moving into this neighborhood where Jerry, Sandy, Becky, Harriet, and Chris. And what's your name? Olivia, Trinidad. <laughs> so um, that was the first time I started to think, oh. And was that difficult for you? Was that, or was it exciting, scary? A bit of both, well, I would think. A bit of both, but I had, I, it, took me until I moved to England. Mm-hmm. I didn't 
really realize that I was feeling any kind of discrimination. And I came to England and, uh, you know, you know, George was really interested in Formula One. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all the drivers, they were Brazilian and yeah. Swiss and Irish and Scottish and French and Spanish. And so everyone was together. Nobody had, there wasn't a hint of any, anything about a nationality. Being, being from different places in the world. No, you were just people. no. And somebody said, oh, you should meet Hector Rabak. He's from Mexico. And I thought, it was just, you know, I thought, oh, there's something different here. And then I kind of looked back on it and thought, wow. And recently I found that the town I, we moved to, which was called Hawthorne, this uh-huh. little town nobody really knows, when it was incorporated in the early 1900s, it was incorporated as a sundown town. Which what, meant what's that mean? Which it meant that people of color had to be off the streets by sundown. No. That's right. And I didn't really I didn't know that. And of course that was abolished in I think the early thirties. But you can't abolish you can't erase every stain. No, of course not. And and your your parents would have would they My have remembered it? Yeah. They probably didn't know. I don't think that no one knew of that about Hawthorne. Wow. But uh, but um, that's why being in a certain part of town, you know, where there were a lot of Mexican families around and nobody thought anything. Uh, but then coming into this other town that was established, you know, as a town like this, uh, there was a, there was a, some sort of pallor that I didn't understand. And it sort of made sense, uh, but only years later. Wow, that's amazing. That is amazing. It is revelatory. Unbelievable. So you went to school in LA and then what made, because you, you joined a record company, right? Is that your first job with A&M? No, no. I liked being, I was a secretary. I liked being a secretary. I still am. <laughs> <laughs> really, <laughs> just organizing Well, everybody. I feel like I'm a secretary for my family. I mean, I, 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 I like organizing. I think, I think women yeah. do that anyway, don't they? <laughs> Mainly. Yeah, they do. Um, I know I, I, I did, uh, um, I was doing a temporary work and I, I went to A&M Records and it was really nice. There were lots of young people there and there was music and it was. Yeah, this was what, in the early 70s? Yeah, I think it was 72. Yeah, that was quite a buzzy, good time. I mean, I was actually, I was, it's funny we didn't meet that. I was in LA then because um, my first husband was American. So we lived in LA. Oh. So, no, actually, I met him in 73. So I lived there between seven, I mean, back and forth to England, depending on what we were doing and work. But between 73 and kind of 80, I, I was back and forth to LA. But the music scene was quite buzzy then, wasn't it? And then the record companies were doing very well, weren't they? <laughs> Probably too well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, A&M was, um, you know, a buzzy place. It was bit of a campus going on there and it was fun and then George's record label George established a record label in 1974 mm-hmm. called Dark Horse yeah. that was being distributed by AM Records and uh and they asked me if I would uh, his manager asked me if I would come and work there I think I was I think they 
um, I was the girl in the yoga pants, the vegetarian in the yoga pants. So they <laughs> probably thought, you'd get thought on. <laughs> she'll get on. And, uh, and we did. <laughs> we, you certainly did. You fell in love. That's so lovely. So, so how long was it before you met him? I mean, you worked with him. He was probably in England, was he? I think, yeah, that's right. I think uh, I worked there from like 72, 74. I was actually leaving A&M and just the day that I, it was really odd, one of those karmic things, the day I was leaving my job, or the day I gave notice to leave, I thought, nah, I'm this, I've had enough now. The next day, his manager called me in and said, you know, we really need somebody at this record label and uh, you'll be the only one there and George is coming over. And I said, did you know I quit here? And he said, no, no, I didn't know. And I said, well, I just let go. And then there was a thing and I said, oh, okay. So that was a oh, really nice oh, it was meant offer to be. and a really nice, yeah. And, you know, of course I love George's music and, and, uh, and, and being in a, a label on my own, that was fun. So I bet. Yeah, and great great people and Robbie Shankar and I know uh, oh, wow. brought an or one of the first things was it brought an orchestra over and uh, so I was immersed deeply in Indian classical music and how fabulous it was really great wow that's amazing well love but that's almost like karma isn't it that you got to meet like that if you'd have left maybe three weeks before it might not have happened that's right yeah that's right but I believe I believe in that what's meant to be yeah, you can't make those things happen. No, you can't. No, no. I I often actually say to people when you know sometimes you meet friends and they're like, oh, I really want to meet someone. I'm so desperate, and that's not when you meet somebody. <laughs> I mean, I met when I met Lee. I'd been on my own for two years, and and I was fine. I had my my daughter Carly was six, but I wasn't really. I mean, I thought it would be nice if I met somebody, but I wasn't really. Mm -hmm. And then we bumped into each other like three times over the period of two weeks in places where neither of us go very often. Funny. And then in the end, I saw him walking along the street and I stopped and said, what are you doing here? He said, I, I, I live in a flat across the road there. And I said, oh, I'm around the oh corner. I said, do you want a cup of tea? So I actually did pick him off the streets. He got in my car and gave him another <laughs> cup of tea. And that was 37 <laughs> years ago. Oh, no, really? Yeah, that was Amazing. in 1985. So there you go. 1985, 37 years ago. How could that be? I know. <laughs> Seems I know. like the other that, day. That is too scary. Too scary. I notice on your beautiful book, which we are going to talk about, that, that Martin Scorsese writes a beautiful piece at the back and the intro and everything. Um, but you, you've worked quite a lot with him on your award-winning documentaries on George and... Um, so how did how, did you meet him a long time ago? Or I did um, maybe two maybe twenty two thousand ten maybe uh, maybe sooner I don't know I was whenever um, No Direction Home when he'd done Bob Dylan's oh yes. uh, documentary oh, that was brilliant I went to see that and uh, his business person said. Uh, you know, if you're going to do something, you should speak to this producer. And that, and, and Marty had directed that. It was brilliant. Uh, and the, yeah, really brilliant. And, uh, and so someone asked him if he would be interested in doing a documentary on George. And he was very interested in George. And in fact, sat right here where I'm sitting, um, he, 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 he spent some time, just a night and a day with George. And uh, so that was nice. 
but he, you know, Marty's always interested in um, man's search and faith mm-hmm. and uh, be- belief and and living in the world and overcoming, you know, trying to be the best person you can be. And, uh, you know, men struggle with that. If you, if you think of mean, mean streets and you see Harvey Keitel in the very opening scene, he, he's talking to someone and he's saying, what's the deal? You know, I come in here and I do confession and I confess all my sins and then I go out and do them all over again. And the shot pulls back and he's talking to Jesus on the cross in the church, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like a, a question of faith. Yeah. And, um, uh, so, uh, Marty was really interested in that, in George, in that sense, uh, and you know the duality. But you had that connection with George, didn't you? Because I mean, I read in a, a little biog of you that you were very into, you know, spiritualism and and you know, trying to find them. Yeah. You know, which I know George was. So that must have been a nice link for you. Were, were you vegetarian and and? Oh, I was at that. Yeah, when I met him, I was really practicing. Yeah. You know, um, devoting a lot of time practicing. I was working, but um, you know, I think in life, when you when you have your basic understanding, your basic values are the same. Mm-hmm. That you know, you have to have that. Of course, you have to have. And 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 when you, I think, have a, you know, your thing that's most important to you, or you know, you're trying to achieve something outside of yourself, you know, that helps you to transcend things that happen in life and it helps you get through things, you know, because if you don't have any desire for the, or glimpse of the bigger picture, then everything's a big deal. You're never going to get through life. You're never going to transcend problems and issues. If every little thing, you know, if you see the bigger, you see the bigger scene, you go, oh, that's a storm in a teacup. Let's just keep our eye on the no, you're goal right. here. But I find, I don't know whether you do, but I, I, I mean, you know, obviously the internet is wonderful on many, many, many levels, but I've, I've kind of struggled with that because it all seemed much simpler when we didn't have the internet and when we didn't have mobile phones to check every five minutes. And and it worries me desperately about my grandchildren because they grow, they're going to grow up with that because we didn't have that, but it was, and we, you knew what was going on in the world, but it wasn't fed into you 24 seven by every thing you turn on, be it the television, be it your, your, computer be it your phone and I I do struggle with that sometimes and often I have days when I don't look at it and I don't you know do my Instagram which I you know I'm terrible my Carly's always chasing me up and saying mom you've got to do another post and because <laughs> I forget I I, I good for you I'd rather good go and you. do I my you know I, I go yeah. and do my sewing instead which I which I love <laughs> I, I think we all need a big digital detox. Yeah, I do. Um, really, you know, I, I, I think I'm going to try and go somewhere and do that. It's addict. It is, you know, it is an addiction. But do you think that is because of our age? Because we're, we're, I think we're about the same age. Do you think that's because it's our age and we remembered it before or? No, I think everybody knows. I think, I don't know what kids think, but I think anyone over 30 knows they're using far too much. much. They're on their phones far too much. Even when, even when we're, you know, because now they know you get a certain rush, you get a, you get a serotonin or whatever it is. Every time that thing goes click, 
your body responds. We're Pavlov's dogs now. It's, um, <laughs> you know, yeah. So, uh, I, I, and, you know, I, I wrote, I know, I wrote, you know, one of the poems is like, you know, it's funny you say that because remember notes left under pillows, a heart carved in a tree, blue envelope with a foreign stamp, a postcard from across the sea, phone calls through the operator before our hands grew phones, the ritual of a Sunday calling mom and dad at home, you know? I know. I wrote that down because it's one of my favorite lines from Keepsakes, right? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's this like, line which Olivia just said is phone calls through the operator before our hands grew phones. It's a brilliant line. I really related to that. And yet if I go out, if I forget my phone sometimes, I mean, there's a panic that sets in. Oh, I haven't got my phone. And then I think, well, hold on, I'm only going to the shops. I'll be back in an hour. <laughs> I mean, I know people will think we're like in the old days, Twiggy. It's like in the old days, <laughs> I mean, I, tr I came over to Europe. <laughs> And you'd go to, I mean, this was just me as, you know, 19-year-old or whatever. You know, you'd go to the American Express office and leave a note on the board. And then you, your friend would come in and say, or you'd say, I'm in Amsterdam or I'm in the hotel something. And you'd leave a note there and somebody would, your friend would find it. And also, and, and, yeah. my best friend, Mary, who actually lives half in LA and half in London, we used to, I mean, she was better than me, but she, I've still got her letters. She used to write me handwritten, we'd write letters to each other, which is lovely. And that's I know. kind of long forgotten oh. handwritten letters. And she was a beautiful writer. I mean, I would reply, but I, I was not so eloquent as she was. But, um, but coming round to the, your book and this book is so beautiful. It's called Came the Lightning and 20 Poems for George. It's, well, I have to say it's beautiful. It's funny. It also, there's a couple, I, you know, I read one this morning that really made me cry, but, yeah. but in the nicest possible sense. Yes. It is yeah. very, very, but you write so beautifully, you know, because Lee, again, my husband has been writing his poetry book for the last couple of years. So oh. I've been working oh. with it. Yeah. And, um, so I've been reading his poems a lot because he started writing poems in 1967 and he found them in a drawer oh, when we were moving. My God. And so he, he suddenly thought, oh, I should put these together and he's been adding to it. So so suddenly getting your book, um, you know, I, 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 I've never been a huge poetry reader but because of working with Lee, well, not working with him. Yeah, but, but being listener. Yeah. I mean, I'm his listener <laughs> to his poems. My I, ear is becoming acclimatised to the I, rhythm. I, I actually It's absolutely yeah. gorgeous. I didn't, uh, thank you. I, I I haven't read a lot of poetry myself, um, but but the poems I have read um, have moved me so deeply. Um, I think now that I've done this, I, th I was sort of afraid to read any more poetry while writing it because I thought, oh, I'll just be, <laughs> I'll just be put off. I don't know any rules. And I had a great, I have a neighbor, James Scudamore, who's an author, and he said to me, Olivia, no rules, just write everything that that comes out. You can deal with everything later. Right, but it's don't, absolutely don't, gorgeous. Be, because um, you know. I, I say that my cadence is difficult. I, I think it is, but it's an emotional cadence. And sometimes I'll start writing and it's going along in a way that a poem would. And then I started feeling more and more and more. And maybe I was going to cry and then it would go faster and faster and then more would pour out. And then it would sort of settle down. 
And I just left it like that. You know, you might have a stanza, a stanza, a verse, and then suddenly it just pours out. And it's really an emotion, emotional cadence is all I can explain. Yeah. But it, that's your natural rhythm, you see. But yeah. it works. It's absolutely beautiful. Thank you. I mean, I, I there was one that I read last week called Heroic Couple. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> your reading at Waterstones, you did talk, Michael Palin talked to you didn't he which was lovely it was a lovely chat and you mentioned that awful encounter in your house and then you but the poem is so emotionally charged I mean it's so beautiful and so frightening yeah I don't know how you wrote it actually you know it's it's unbelievable that you was it did it help to write it down this was the, the attack in your house right by an intruder we had an intruder and very nearly didn't survive that. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I wrote, I, I was, people said, why did you write about it? Um, uh, I, I could write a lot more about it. Uh, but mm-hmm. what I was trying, I didn't really realize where it was going to end, how it was going to go. But the point of that poem is that had, you know, George always thought that John Lennon, the the real tragedy for John, of course, the tragedy was he died, he was murdered. Yeah. But the real tragedy was that he didn't have a chance to die the way he wanted to. He yeah. didn't have a chance to, to be in charge of that leaving, which yeah. is something, you know, in certain practices, you know, we have to think about this all, Absolutely. you know, everywhere is, nothing is lasting here. How do we <laughs> wish to go and leave our bodies? And, uh, the point of that was, had that happened that night, had we not survived that night, would have been really, you know, George was like, I can't believe this happened. And yet, you know, he did die two years later, but but he had the, the passing he wanted. And yeah, he, he was in charge of his, you know, he went on his own terms, on his own terms, not, I, you know, in the poem it says, death proper, not imposter. And, that's right. And, and that's that, that death line. would have been like, that's not the, your real death. That is not the no. death meant for you. And, uh, and, but and, no, nobody deserves what happened to you to happen. Nobody deserves that. No. Unbelievable. And yet, you know, we're just one of, we were just one of many. I think about it and I think, you know, I don't want, it was a big deal, but I think, yeah, but look what other, look what people go through and, you know, phew kids and teenagers and I know. people being well, in the wrong place well, at the wrong time. In, yeah, and what's in happening America. in Ukraine. Yeah. And as you, you know, I know you, you did had a big charity for the Romanian, Romanian orphans, yes. didn't you? I did. Yeah. What was ha- what happened there? And I, and it, I, but again, it's back to that thing, you, you know, we are fed these things that are happening in the world and, you have to know about it, but if if it's twenty four seven, you become no, you can't. Well, I, be, I become. There's nothing I can do. I don't know what to do. It's it's it's, you know, it's terrifying. A, it is, and you know, I think you have to limit your. Yeah, I, I read what I want to read, and that's it. But because we know what's going on, you can read the headlines and figure it out. But yeah. George said that once um, <clears throat> when twenty four hour news started happening. There wasn't twenty four hour news you know, forever. It was a thing. And George said, what? Now the whole world's going to hear about why should somebody in, you know, I forget some 
you know, other country be hearing about O.J. Simpson? What good is it going to do them to be hearing this trial? Nobody needs to know. Not the whole world doesn't need to know this. And, no, uh, I agree. And that whole trial that went on. And it's like it's, it's like feeding some animal that never gets full, isn't it? It's like this awful. And also think of rural people who now, you know, I mean, of course, everyone deserves to have communications, but you think somebody living a beautiful life in a, you know, what we dream about in a rural place and what now this river of sewage is going through their houses too. I know. Uh, That's what this, that's what it is. I, you know, I'm not watching the news anymore. I listen to Radio 4. I listen to, uh, you know, World Service. Uh, well, when when the, the pandemic and then Ukraine start, you know, all happened, we were watching it, the news, all through the day. And then it became so, dis, you know, distressing that we we actually stopped watching the news before we went to bed because you went to bed oh, yeah. all agitated. So... We watch we watch once a day a half hour of oh, that's news on the BBC, so we're informed. And if we need to check it out, we can go online. Yeah. But yeah. When I go to bed, I read a, a novel. I'm I, I mean I'm an, a big reader, and I love my novels. Oh. Usually, I yeah. either romantic novels or some. John Grisham thriller or something. Oh, good! Purest, pure escapism, <laughs> and um, and of course now your beautiful poetry book. Oh, it's gorgeous, and there's so many lovely pictures in it as well. I love them. Thank They're you. Beautiful. And you know, I think. Well, I know that had I tried to write an autobiography, it wouldn't have been anywhere near as intimate or revealing or emotional as this. <clears throat> and trying to distill a life and love and, 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 you know, decades together to distill it down into some, a, a page. It's really hard to do, but that's why it's, I think poetry is so powerful because you're, you're, you're telling something in a few lines. Um, you're distilling that. It is, that but you experience. need the talent to do it. And you certainly have. Had oh. you written poems before? No, that's the odd that's thing. Amazing, yeah, and um, because I, it, it's so eloquent and so beautifully written. Well, I I had you know when George first died, I wrote some things that I never returned to them. I have to go and find out what I wrote. Oh, I, you must that because that's when Lee found his poems from 1967. That's what triggered him thinking, oh, my goodness. Well, I really look forward to that. He'd forgotten about them. I really look forward to that. You know, he might might ask your advice of what you think. I don't think he needs advice. I think they're really really good. But But, um, um, if you want, maybe we could close with one. Yeah, I was just going to say, do do you want to pick? I mean, I've written a few down. What would you like? You tell me. I had another spring I thought was beautiful. It's well, your book. You pick one. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, okay. Maybe I could read South. I, I like Go this on, one. Okay, it's called South. As I said, I'm very fascinated with latitudes, and and uh, um, people make fun of me. My friends make fun of me. <laughs> we caressed in a thermal haze of the south-facing wall where the sun god threw his fire, anointing our tall shadows in the light of the longest day on whitewashed bricks that held the heat of solar rays. Saturn peaches soft to the touch left squishy hollows where our fingers brushed. 
pricked by wild blackberries that stained our teeth and tongues. Solstice brought its magic and a bunch of red grapes hung. Over the doorway, still bitter as the earth began to tilt, then juicy and dark before we surrendered to the fall and headed for lower latitudes to watch fronds unfurl and humpbacks call. Us to the very edge of the cliff where I stand now, wondering if I should drift down onto the rocks in dark sea to join the sirens in a surprising tragedy. Or wait for another sunrise on my face. I hear you say surely that is a better place. To walk barefoot and pick ice-blue calatheas, pink gingers, heliconias as a winter panacea. Fleeting flavors traded on sticky lips, betrayed by a harvest moon. A rush to ripen early meant falling far too soon. The price of summer love, a mirage of golden days, came requital for the endless warmth and exchange we had to pay. Mm, absolutely gorgeous. Thank you. Thank you. Gorgeous. I'm thinking of that now because it's summertime and all of us in our gardens have our south facing walls where we grow grapes and apricots and oranges. And that, if you put your hands on that wall at the end of the day, the bricks are really hot. Hot. Although you, I think you were, you were in Europe recently and you, you sent me an email saying it's hot. (laughs) (laughs) How hot was it? Were you in the South? I was in Greece. I was in Greece and it was hot. But, um, but, well, I think it's a heat wave everywhere at the moment. It is right now. And I think, you know, we wait all year and then we get that wall (laughs) and then suddenly you've got like an apricot and you think, what? In England? It's so. I'm going to get out there now. Listen, thank you so much for coming and chatting to me. It's been an absolute joy. Oh, I love hanging um, out with you. It's great. (laughs) Oh, that was so lovely to catch up with Olivia. She's quite a special woman, an amazing woman, actually. And this book of poems is so beautiful. And it's out now, so please get a copy. It's called Came the Lightning, 20 Poems for George. And it's, you should have a box of tissues with you when you read some of them. They're quite emotionally moving. They're beautiful. But it's funny and sweet. And there's some lovely pics as well. Anyway, that was nice. And I'll see you soon. Lots of love. Bye. If this is your first time listening to Tea with Twiggy, please do remember to tell your friends. You can also subscribe for free on your podcast app and listen to all my previous guests. If you want to connect with me, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Twiggy, or you can find me on Instagram at Twiggy Lawson. My thanks go to all the people that have helped this podcast happen. Many thanks to James Carroll and all the team at North Bank Talent Management. Thanks to all the team at Stripped Media, including Ben Williams, who edits the show, my producer, Kobe Omanaka, and executive producers, Tom Wally and Dave Corkery. The music you can hear now is my version of Waterloo Sunset by The Kinks. If you'd like to hear the whole song, you can find it and all the other songs I've recorded on iTunes and Spotify. So check it out. I look forward to you joining me for my next episode. So see you then. Bye.
You just heard a stripped media production. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.